Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode Twenty Three. One. A man in a tan jacket, hands in his pockets, and mumbling to himself, headed across the courtyard toward the Vatican Palace in the early morning light, weaving among the tourists and people idling in the morning sun. At first, there wasn't anything about him that drew the attention of the police or the Swiss guard. He just walked like he knew where he was going. Then something changed in his step. It was too quick, too deliberate, and getting faster. A policeman noticed his dark, moving shape in the crowd, the way a lifeguard at the beach notices the shadow of a shark in the water. He put his handset to his mouth to tell a couple other officers. He headed over to investigate. The man in the tan jacket noticed the policeman, too, and further quickened his pace. He stopped weaving and started to make a straight line for the palace. He jostled a woman trying to take a picture, bumped shoulders with a tourist walking the other way. Hey, the tourist said. The man in the jacket didn't look back. His pace was even faster now, almost a run. The policeman moved through the crowd toward the man and radioed for backup. Two other policemen responded. The second officer approached the man in the jacket from behind, the third from the side. The man broke into a run. A sound came from him, a whine that burst into a roar too big for a human throat. The third policeman reached him first and grabbed one of his arms. The man tried to throw him off, but the policeman wouldn't let go. The man left forward, still in the direction of the palace. That was when his skin began to change. It started to shine, to shimmer, until it was almost translucent. Then it tinted a splotchy red. The man kept running. The first policeman yelled at the crowd to clear the square. Most followed the order. A few whipped out their phones to take videos. The phones didn't work. The second policeman caught up to the man from behind and tackled him to the ground. The third policeman had one arm. The first policeman ran and pinned the other one down. Calm down, sir, the first policeman said. The man roared again, louder than before. A torrent of words in a language none of the officers had ever heard before rushed out of his mouth. They sounded like curses, old and foul. 
Then the man blistered all over in seconds. His skin cracked open and smoke poured out. Blood burned off before it could flow, and the policeman jumped away as the man self-immolated in front of the Vatican Palace, so fast that he left his clothes behind, pants, socks, jacket, and all, singed and smoking, but still there. What the hell was that? The third policeman said. The second policeman just stared, wide-eyed, shaking his head. Back, the first policeman yelled at the crowd, which was starting to move forward, wondering what they had seen. No pictures, you understand? No pictures. Later, the three officers were informed that they had thwarted a terrorist attack. They were given bonuses and a few days off. Hillary Sansoni from Team Two made the rounds in the media and gave them the same story. The newspapers and TV shows were satisfied. It was what eyewitnesses thought they saw. It was the best way to explain the memories they had. No one could explain why none of the cameras worked, but there was nothing to be done about that fact. Something about the bomb he had, someone said, and that was enough. The society knew what had happened. It was the third attack they'd faced that week. Team three had found one small demon on a highway into the city. There had been a car chase for a few kilometers, then a zigzag through back streets before the demon, which didn't know where it was going, hit a dead end. It turned its host into water. There in the driver's seat of the car, it had made the man steal as Grace approached. Another demon, brawny but stupid, managed to land itself in jail for brawling and hanged its host in the cell. Team three only knew about that one because of the orb. The man had no identification. The police buried the body. The demon was still out there looking for another host, another shot. Team three was sure of it. So was team one. Team three was all together in the archives when team one's new leader arrived. She descended the long spiral staircase fast with three men in tow and somehow found her way straight to Asante's desk. Team One's leader gave each member of Team Three a courteous smile and a quick nod, but it was hard for Sal to shake the feeling that their new leader was here to arrest her. They know, Sal thought. No, they don't, the hand said. Father Menchu, Team One's leader said. She turned to each of them. Grace, uh, Liam, Sal, Asante, is it all right if I address you this way? I am Tavani Shaw, the new head of Team One. I've been reading up on all of you and these archives you oversee, and I want to tell you how much I admire the work that you do. Thank you, Menchu said. I hear that some of you were present when my predecessor died. Yes, Sal said. I hope I can serve you as well as he did. I hope you can do better than he did, Sal thought, but kept it to herself. Shaw looked around. Fascinating place. I'd like to visit someday when I can have time to appreciate it. But we have work to do. Her eyes focused again on Menchu. I know that you have some very capable people, but we are going to strengthen security here. She extended her hand to her left toward the three men who had followed her in. Two of them were wearing the bright uniforms of the Swiss Guard, a look that Sal was still having trouble taking seriously. One of them was dressed in the loose fatigues the members of Team One liked to wear. This is Gardas Schaffner and Gardas Hugen, Shaw said. With them is Yoki Voss, one of our own. I'm going to ask you if I can station them here in the archives. It's a little crowded in here already, don't you think? Grace said. Shaw turned to Grace. Agreed, the situation is not ideal, but we're concerned about a visible increase in security outside the archives, even within the Vatican. We don't want to alarm people unnecessarily. Grace nodded. That's fair, she said. I'll ask you to brief these men on the important details, Shaw said. 
Please let me know if I can help you in any other way. She looked back up toward the stairs. Thank you, Shaw, Menchu said. Shaw left. The three soldiers looked at Team Three. Team Three looked back. There was a tiny and, to Sal, very uncomfortable pause. Have you ever fought monsters before? Grace said. Voss nodded. The two Swiss Guard soldiers didn't move. Good luck, Grace said to them. How many, Schaffner said, how many monsters are you expecting? Asante shrugged. It's hard to say, she said. It's my understanding that the demons have always preferred to stay away from this place. The things we have here may be interesting to us, to people, but they are not as interesting to them. At least not interesting enough to justify the trouble of getting in here. Until now, said Hugin. We seem to have collected something that's suddenly worth the trouble, Liam said. The Codex Umbra, Vas said. Good, Asante said. You did your homework. What is so interesting to the demons about this book? Vas said. Asante shrugged. I haven't found a good answer to that question. Sal wanted to ask Asante the same thing. She wanted to get a couple of steps ahead of the hand, to let the demon know that she had something on him, some kind of advantage. But she found she couldn't talk, couldn't move at all. Let me go, Sal said to the hand. Not until you promise to behave, the hand said. If you don't let me go, everyone will notice that I'm not moving. Look around you, dear, the hand said. No one notices. Why do you want the Codex Umbra? What does it do? Somewhere in the middle of her skull, she could hear the hands snicker. All in due time, it said. Sal grimaced. Manchu cleared his throat. Let's hope we don't find out, he said. I think that we cannot wait for a fourth or fifth attack. If the answer is not here, then it is out there. Somewhere, someone knows. He turned to Liam. Do you know who we might talk to? Manchu said. Liam allowed himself a small smile. I might have a couple of promising leads, he said. You're underground people, Grace said. I don't think they'd call themselves that, but yeah, Liam said. When can we see them, Menchu said. Anytime, Liam said. No time like now, right? Good, Menchu said. Lead the way. Sal, I'd like you to come with us. Santi, call us if there's anything more from the orb. Liam got up from the couch already making calls. Menchu turned to Grace. Now that we have these soldiers here, let's get you some rest, okay, he said. Sal could tell Grace didn't like it, but there was nothing else for her to do. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. The cafe was like a hundred others in Rome. Sal freely admitted that when she had first come to Rome, the romance of it got to her a little bit. In the web of her American associations with all things Roman, those cafes were either for stopping in while on your honeymoon or for hiding in plain sight from Interpol because you were on the lam due to some elite crime like robbing a casino. She realized, stepping into this one with Liam and Menchu, that she'd spent enough time in Rome for places like this to just become coffee shops. And even though they were bathed in slanting afternoon light, the two men waiting for them at a glass table weren't romantic in the least. Liam? One of them said, nodding. It was unclear how he'd recognized Liam, since the man had dirty white bandages wrapped over his eyes, as though he'd had an operation a month ago and spent the time since then walking around next to a highway. Is Liam here already? The other one said. He wore large circular glasses that made his eyes look even bigger than they were. Pardon him, the one with the bandages said. He doesn't see very well. Gentlemen, Liam said. These are two of my colleagues, Father Manchu and Sal Brooks. The one with the bandages stood up and extended his hand. A pleasure, he said. I am Cosme Nicolescu. This is Hassan Marangos. Marangos nodded in their general direction. Good to see you, Liam. He nodded toward Sal, too, she noticed, as if he recognized her. The waiter came over with three coffees for them. We ordered for you, said Nicolescu. We thought you could use a little lift. You're going to need it, said Marangos. What do you mean, Manchu said. Nicolescu and Marangos looked at each other, then at Liam. Is this a setup, Nicolescu said. Liam shook his head. You're safe here. We need some reassurance, Marangos said. Manchu nodded and handed them each a small stack of bills. There, he said. Now we're complicit, at least for the moment. Nicolescu looked at Manchu approvingly. It's best when we all have a skeleton in the closet. Yes, Manchu said. Now, tell us what you know. Nicolescu took a sip of coffee. You've become famous. I thought we were always famous, Liam said. Nicolescu gave a dismissive wave of his hand. Among the likes of us, yes. Among demons themselves, no. I understand that you believe your job is important and that the church has devoted considerable resources to it for a few centuries. 
but you have merely been collecting the objects that humans might use to bring magic into the world. The truly powerful objects, Marango said, the ones that demons would want to use to wield magic, have almost never made it here. Why would they? The demons want them and they keep them. Except for what we have, Menchu said. Now both Nicolescu and Marango smiled. You don't have to be vague, Marango said. We know what you have. Everyone is talking about the Codex Umbra. And the word is the demons are too. They say the news has swept across the world already, and a wide variety of supernatural beings are very, very interested in what you have there in the Vatican Library. How many are we talking about? Sal said. Against her will, she realized. She sounded like that poor Swiss guard in the archives. In the world or coming for you? Coming for us, Sal said. Nicolescu looked at the ceiling. There are at least a dozen in Rome right now. She heard the hands snicker again. I would ask them who specifically, but that would arouse suspicion, wouldn't it? Don't gloat, Sal said. But it's so much fun, the hand said. You should lower your dozen to nine, Liam said. We're not counting the ones who have already tried to get it, Nicolescu said. Fine, a dozen then. And more are arriving, Nicolescu said. You can assume they will keep coming until you get rid of it, which reminds me. He took a sip of coffee and looked at Menchu. You know, father, if you were willing to part with it, you could make a great deal of money, even after our standard commission. Enough that you and your team could retire from this game for good. We're not interested, Menchu said. I appreciate that. Nicolescu said, but I should warn you that those three were little ones, stupid ones. Some of the demons will be bigger and smarter, much smarter, and there are a lot of them. No matter how secure you think you can make it, I assume you've, uh, what is the English phrase, beefed up security? It doesn't matter. One of them will still get in one of these days, Probably one of these days this week. Somewhere behind her right ear, Sal could hear the hand laughing. If only they knew, he said. In other words, Liam said, you're telling us your offer will stand if we change our minds because we decide we can't handle it. Of course, Nicolescu said. Though the price will drop some, perhaps drastically, when everyone realizes how dangerous the book is, the time to sell is now. Nice pitch, Liam said. Nicolescu shrugged. It's a living, he said. But business interests aside, I am trying to tell you that you have only seen the beginning of your problems. To my knowledge, you have never had a book like this before. You have avoided, to a large extent, seeing what magic really looks like. Father Manchu bristled. We know what magic looks like. Begging your pardon, father, Marango said, but no, you don't. You have only seen its manifestations in our world. You have never seen beyond that, but you will, soon. Sooner than you think, said the hand inside Sal's head. You seem to know these demons personally, Menchir said. Can you tell us anything about them? What can we say, 
Marango said. They don't tell us what they're planning or even what they can do. He stopped and thought for a moment. Though I can say that some of them seem to be working together, cooperating, forming alliances. So the next attack, you see, there will likely be more than one of them at once. They're teaming up, Sal said. Nicolescu smiled. It's only fair. You did it first. Three. The streetlights came on outside the bar where two men and a woman sat at a table near the window. One man had been there all day drinking beer, but he was still sober. The other man had arrived a half hour ago and ordered an aperitivo. The woman had just sat down, hadn't even taken her jacket off yet. She ordered a ginger ale. Lightweight, the drinker said. Gorgor, said the one with the aperitivo. Be quiet. Ariath can drink what she wants. You be quiet, Rescatel, said Gorgor. Both of you be quiet, Ariath said. Don't let your nervousness make you run at the mouth. I am not nervous, Gorgor said. Ariath sighed. It's like you forget that I can read minds. Whatever you are reading, it is not nervousness, Gorgor said. Then what is it, Rescatel said. Excitement. Gorgor said. So, do we go over the plan one more time? Rescatel said. One moment, Ariath said. She had the woman she was inhabiting close her eyes. It made it easier for her to sweep the minds in the room. She learned that the woman sitting in the corner in the green skirt was about to break up with the man at the bar in the black shirt. The man in the black shirt, meanwhile, was about to ask the woman in the green skirt whether she would consider a threesome. The five people gathered two tables over from them, all worked at the same company, Ariat learned. They were sitting there laughing and talking about nothing. Of the five, four were unaware that the fifth one was about to fire them. At the table right next to them, a woman and a man, both with streaks of gray in their hair, were talking about their favorite movies. They were both divorced, Ariat learned, and had only met once before at the party of a mutual friend. Both of them were playing it cool. Both of them were crawling out of their skin with lust for each other. Ariath hoped it worked out for them, but from her perspective, the only thing that mattered was that nobody was eavesdropping on them. Okay, she said, let's talk. Let's walk through the plan backward, said Rescatel. When we are in the library, the plan is straightforward. Ariath, you read the librarian's mind to know where the Codex Umbra is. You put this information in my mind and any other information I may need to get there. Right, said Ariath. Then your job is essentially done. Rescatel said. Ariath made her possessed subject smile. Then it's my job to go get the book itself, Rescatel said. Yes? Are you sure you can do it by yourself? Gorgor said. Positive, said Rescatel. As long as the obstacles are merely physical, there are no obstacles. And Gorgor, you remember your job, right? Excuse me, Gorgor said. He had taken another long swig of beer and was now staring at the ceiling. Oh, yes, my job is to create havoc. The important part of this being, said Rescatel as though they were reciting a catechism, that I cannot remain in this human form and still so chaos, Gorgor said. I must burst free of it first. Right, 
Rescatel said. Which means that I must not do this until we have no use for our disguises. Correct, Rescatel said. And who decides when we have no use for our disguises? When Arias detects that someone knows we are not what we seem to be. Rescatel nodded. Good, you got it. I have been studying, Gorgor said with a smile. It shows, Rescatel said. You do not have to be condescending about it, Gorgor said. I'm not, Rescatel said. I promise. Rescatel's eyes flicked toward Ariath, just to let Ariath know that he knew that she knew he was lying. So before that, Ariath said to Gorgor, all you have to do is be quiet and follow us. Rescatel and I will talk our way in until we can't anymore. Gorgor nodded. Do you think you can do it? He said. Yes, Rescatel and Ariath answered together. Good, Gorgor said. Because I do not want to destroy the entire Vatican Library for one book. That would be tiring, but I will do it if I have to. You won't have to, Ariath said. Gorgor fidgeted in his chair. Would you like to go home now, Gorgor? Rescatel said. Yes, Gorgor said with relief. All right, uh, tomorrow morning then, outside Vatican City. Yes, Gorgor said. Tomorrow morning. I cannot wait to have the book in our possession. Gorgor got up from the table and gave them a little bow, then headed out the door. They smiled and waited until he was gone. So we agree that we don't really care what happens to him, Ariath said. Of course, Rescatel said. I'll make sure he never touches the Codex. Once we have it, we'll be able to do away with him in the blink of an eye. He wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. Ariat said. Really, we're doing the world's a service, Rescatel said. Ariat nodded. I'm looking forward to ruling with you. And I you, Rescatel said. Ariat tried to look into Rescatel's head, but she couldn't. She had never been able to. It must be part of his power as a shapeshifter, she thought. He can hide what he looks like, make himself look like something else. Why not hide what he's thinking, too? Following the logic of that, though, didn't make her feel better. He'd only hide his thoughts from me if he didn't want me to see them. They turned their smiles on each other. They didn't trust each other at all. Four. Sal unlocked the door to her apartment. She didn't want to be there, at all. She tried to resist the hand. She had fought him, exerted all the will she had to keep him from using her as his puppet, but the hand was too strong for her. He'd made her say that she was tired and needed a few hours rest in her own bed, even though she wasn't tired at all. He'd made her come all the way back to the apartment, take out her keys, turn the lock, and walk in. What are we doing here, Sal said. She heard the hand sigh. This talking to yourself has become awkward, he said. Sal felt a tap on her shoulder and turned. It was Perry following her inside. Hey, Perry said. Oh my God, Sal said. Is it really you? Nope, Perry said. 
there is, in fact, no one else here at all. This is just a demonstration of the things I can make you see, the things I can make you feel. You asshole, Sal said. Suit yourself, Perry said. He melted in front of her, right into the floor. Sal felt a rush of wind behind her from inside the apartment. She heard two feet alight on the floor. It was her mother. Stop fucking around, Sal said. Fine, the hand said in mock exasperation. Her mother reached into her own chest and threw off her skin in one dramatic gesture. It flew into the air behind her and turned to smoke. Underneath that was an almost perfect replica of Sal, except for the eyes, which were like negatives of her own. White pupils, gray irises, floating in little black pools between her eyelids. Get it, the doppelganger hand said. It's like you're talking to yourself. Except I'm not talking out loud, Sal said. You can sense that, the hand said. That's good, you're strong. I knew I picked the right host. Don't be so sure how right I am, Sal said. The doppelganger looked around her apartment. True, perhaps I should have taken over Father Manchu instead. Then I would already have the codex instead of having to watch while that sad little priest stuffed it into that magic sack or whatever it is. On the other hand, that I now simply have to wait until someone unearths it from your archives is a mere question of patience. And from the sound of things, I won't have to wait long at all. Sooner or later, and probably much sooner, some clever creature will do the tricky work of extracting the book from the archives. And I will be there when it happens. Then why did you just make me come home? Sal said. Housekeeping, the doppelganger said. She walked into the kitchen. Actually, you should come and see this. It's gonna be like the scene in the Shawshank Redemption when the warden finally figures out what's going on. You've seen the Shawshank Redemption? My dear, everyone has. Come on. As if I have a choice, Sal said. Right now you do, I suppose. Don't play mind games with me, Sal said. Sal, the doppelganger said. Your life since I entered it has all been a mind game. You don't appreciate just how much I can make you see and do. Perhaps because I haven't yet exerted my full authority over you. The doppelganger lifted a finger into the air, and with a faint smile, she drew a line downward toward the floor. A slit opened in Sal's vision, or the air, or the world. It was impossible to say which. And the doppelganger reached in and pulled it open, like a curtain. Through the window in the air were miles of burning fields, towers that had once reached to the sky, now crumbling in dust and smoke. Over it all, the shadow of a greasy wing blotted out the sky. The doppelganger pulled the curtain closed, and it was gone. What did you just show me? Sal said. Whatever I wanted, that's just the beginning. Now Sal found her right hand rising in front of her, turning toward herself. The hand tightened into a fist, then extended the pointer finger in line with her left eye. Slowly, irresistibly, the tip of that finger pressed closer to her face. You wouldn't, Sal said. It's just to prove a point. I can probably fix your eye again after you've poked it out, but the pain will teach you a lesson. The tip of the finger was too close to her eye and getting closer. That was when Sal made a decision. I'm not doing this, she said. You are very much doing this, the doppelganger said. Like hell I am. Sorry, Perry, she thought. I failed you. In a move that must have broken the hand's concentration for a moment, there was no other way to explain why it worked, Sal ran for the balcony. The door was already open, which she was thankful for. 
It made what she wanted to do that much easier. She sprang for the railing. The doppelganger didn't move. Didn't have time to, Sal thought. Sal grasped the railing with both hands, lifted herself up off the balcony floor like a gymnast, and started swinging her legs over. In less than a second, the momentum of that swing and gravity would send her headfirst toward the street. She wasn't that high up, but she was high enough. She'd seen what happened to people who fell from heights like these. With luck, it wouldn't even hurt. Except that midway through the swing, she stopped. Every muscle in her body froze as if paralyzed. No, as if turned to stone. Her legs were suspended over the railing in midair. Her elbows were bent. She was just tilting forward. But her hands, her arms weren't letting go. They held on with a strength she hadn't quite known she had. Nice try, the doppelganger said. It waved its hand in the air and Sal collapsed onto the balcony. Come back inside, I have something to show you. The doppelganger was reaching for the handle of the oven. You have something in there? Sal, the doppelganger said, you really should bake more. She opened the oven. A mist rose from it that smelled as if something amphibious had died in it. The mist cleared. There was a mortar made of dried lava, a clump of leaves tied in a bundle, a bird's wing, a desiccated finger with a claw at the end of it. All around the oven, bright yellow spiders the size of Sal's hands were spinning a network of webs into what looked like a tunnel. The doppelganger opened her mouth and moved her lips as though she were speaking, but Sal only heard a few syllables flitting in and out of silence. It occurred to her that the rest of them were too high or too low to hear. The spiders stopped what they were doing and turned to face her. They were talking back. The doppelganger nodded and closed the oven door. Good, she said. It's ready. What is, Sal said. When I have the codex, she giggled. All I need to do is say the magic words and a portal will open between wherever I am and here. It's my escape hatch. When did you do all this, Sal said. See, I told you it was going to be like the Shawshank Redemption, the doppelganger said. You've been sleepwalking night after night ever since you got to Rome. At first, I thought I might find what I wanted at the archives, but what you had there was, shall we say, not germane to my goals. So then it was just a question of letting you go out, looking for the right book, the right amulet, even the right moment for me to make my move. I had no idea it would come so soon or be so promising. The Codex Umbra. I couldn't have asked for better. To do what, Sal said. The doppelganger looked toward the ceiling, making a show of thinking. Can you see it yourself? Sal could. No, she said. Please don't. It only looks like hell to you, the doppelganger said. To us, it's what this world could look like when I flood it with magic. You may have noticed that the more magic there is, the more I can control it. If I bring enough magic into this world, I can make it mine. Why do you want this world so much, Sal said. Let's just say that in my world, there are politics, the doppelganger said. You mean there are demons back there more powerful than you, Sal said. Demon is not a word we would use to describe ourselves, the doppelganger said. Sal kept a straight face. She'd learned something, even if she wasn't sure how to use it yet. Now, let's go back to the archives, the doppelganger said. I don't want to miss the show. You can take us there, or I can make you take us there. I'm going, Sal said. 
But just so you know, the second you give me the chance, I'll kill you. The doppelganger vanished. The hand was back in her head, right behind her eyes. I wouldn't want it any other way, she heard him say. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of Go Kid Go and a mom to two kids. Join my family on the story train with Calm Conductor Birdie each night as we travel through the magic rainbow tunnel to everywhere and anywhere to find the best bedtime stories. Search for Story Train on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.